You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Uh, Andre, is that you? Yeah, Andre? I feel like it's Andre? been... Is that you? I haven't heard your voice in so long. I know. I, well, well, Uncle Henry? A twister? What a lot of people don't know is when we do these podcasts, especially when we talk to uh, Westcott, uh, the, the Westcott people and uh, Thomas, is we recorded a whole bunch of stuff at the beginning of the pandemic just because we didn't know what things were going to look like. So you and I haven't really spoken in about a month. It has been a while. Uh, I know we've uh, we've uh, done a little bit of messaging, a little texting, going, "Hey, what podcast is coming up?" <laughs> we, we had so much in the bank, uh, but uh, yeah, I was like, um, I, I couldn't believe we were actually going to do one, uh, quote unquote, live. Yes, and I was very excited. Uh, I know you helped line this up, but I have been completely unashamed. Um, Whenever I get a chance to talk about this particular winery and winemaker on uh, Newstalk 1010, I do that. Uh, I've, I've written about him extensively at andrewinereview.ca. Uh, we're joined by Kevin Panagapka. And I got one more accolade. He's probably one of the most underrated uh, winemakers in the Niagara area. Oh, I completely <laughs> agree with that. And, and goes about his work very, very quietly. Now you can finish yeah. the introduction. <laughs> Uh, I think I think you I think you hit all the points. We're, we're joined by Kevin Panagapka of Twenty Twenty Seven Sellers to talk about uh, some very new, exciting stuff going on at the winery. Yeah, there's. Uh, well, we, we've finished building. We're opening up on on Saturday. So Jody and I started this company in two thousand and seven, and as you as you guys have said, I've quietly been just making single vineyard wines since then. But I've been making wine for twenty years. Not only in this area, but it's spent some time in New Zealand. So, anyway, we now have a retail license and a retail store, which is on the same property as Calamus, who I make the wines for as well. And uh, we're going to be opening for the first time. The public can come and uh, buy and taste the wines on the weekend. Um, the business has basically mostly been licensees. So, uh, restaurants in Toronto and a little bit through the LCBO is pretty much where the only place you could find 2027 for a long time. And the LCBO yeah. stuff is where I've become very familiar with with your wines, the um, the underpriced Chardonnays that, that go through there. But uh, you have raised your prices a little bit, uh, I think, since getting to the retail. But there's still definitely a lot of uh, bang for buck. And for people listening, when we say weekend, we're recording this on, on June 18th. So you're opening your doors on June the 20th, right? So that yep, will have been that will have been last weekend, the weekend that just passed. If you're listening to this, okay, right, got it. So, yeah. so Kevin, how does how does that come about? Because I, I I think, and I'm trying to I'm racking my brain here. You're not a virtual anymore. You actually have a retail license. I'm correct on that. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you are. Uh, so we know we know virtual wineries like uh, uh, Narai Cellars. They sell out of Coffin Ridge. I believe yours sold out of Featherstone for a bit. Correct? When you were when you were virtual. There's two ways to start a winery. The one idea was the virtual piece where you're you're a sub brand of another winery, effectively. So you're under their licensing system, or you get your own licenses. And I I um, now have all the same licenses as any other winery does. The only difference is I lobbied the Alcohol and Gaming Commission to allow two retail um, stores of different companies on one property. So now when you come to Calamus, there's Calamus Wines, which, I make, which I'm the winemaker for, and I'm very proud of those wines as well. 
and and my wines 2027. So 2027 is my grower number. So they've been single. I started with 100 cases of Riesling in 2007, and uh, this year or last year we did 3,000 cases of six or seven different single vineyard varieties. So, so we're I, growing. I asked, yeah. I asked Andre this this question the other day. And I said, uh, how weird is it going to be to see your wines in uh, in seven years? <laughs> well, it'll be the 20th anniversary, too, so maybe there's something uh, something to do with that. Just making it 20 years in the wine industry is tough enough, so if I make it that long, I think, uh, I think the, we're looking okay now. So the 2027-2027 Chardonnay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll throw funny. a big party. I'll throw a big party, and I'll release some some uh something special that's a good idea actually i'm gonna think about that now so 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 you know what's cool it's 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 interesting that your um that your winery is named after your your grower number because uh that means that you you owned your own vineyards before starting your wine label is that correct yeah so that would mean that like as far as virtual wineries are concerned like most of them you're in you're buying your fruit from people who will who will sell to you and you're making your, your wine offsite, but you would have been one of the only, I guess, the only estate virtual winery that would exist in uh, in Niagara. Yeah, the, the model's based on, well, the virtual thing isn't wasn't new when I started, like, whatever, 14 years ago. They were doing that. They, like, the garage East thing was happening in New Zealand and Australia and in California. So the idea wasn't new, but the getting it figured out here um, was, was a new idea. But the the model is based on the Burgundy model. So instead of having a state fruit of one block, um, you have little parcels all over the place. So I have six rows here, ten rows over there, five rows over here. And I manage all the viticulture. Well, I have a viticulture company that does the work and, and helps with that. But um, I manage the viticulture and make the wine. And the reason I named the, the winery after the grower is, is and, and we talked about me not being very public with the wines. One reason was... I couldn't sell to the public, <laughs> so um, for ten years I, I couldn't do that. So there, there was mostly my focus on the business was with restaurants and the LCBO. And now with the public being able to try the wines, I'm trying to be more. As my wife is the marketing expert, not me, trying to get out there more with the brand. And the brand was always based on a couple of things, and it hasn't changed since the first wine I made. The viticulture is at the highest level it can be, and so are the barrels. So all the inputs into the wine are spared no expense regardless on on uh, price point. And and the, the wines, I think, or my goal with the wine was to have very high-quality wine at a reasonable price so that people could afford to have a great Chardonnay for 27 bucks or a great sparkling for 40 um, or even a, a really great white blend at 16 or, or a rosé at 18. Like, I, I don't think you need, and I've said this right from the beginning, I, it, it, it bothers me, you shouldn't have to have a lot of money to have a great bottle of wine. And uh, above, you know, we get into Chardonnay, you know, above 25 and 25 to 50, it starts to get real subjective. So I think a $30 price point for a Chardonnay of the quality of oak that I'm using, which is the best you can buy, um, and the quality of the, the vineyards I'm after is, is, is great value for people. And um, value is a perception, right? I mean, it's like if you go in a restaurant, like I'll spend $10 or 500 but I better leave thinking that's a good value. And I feel like, like wine's in that same vein. There's a, there's a, there's a perceived um, qualitative piece still. Because there, I have nowhere to declassify, there's no second label. It's either 100% or nothing right through the right across the board, which is why I treat 
and pay for um, viticulture to be the same right across the board because there's the same quality throughout all of the products. The price points may differ. Some grapes are more expensive than others. Some some wines go into uh, barrels that are 1600 bucks each, but um, and that affects the price. But that was always my, my main goal was to get out fantastic wines at a reasonable price. So be at the top end, but be in the in in, in a more accessible price point for the public. Man, you're, so the reason why, sorry. No, it's just oh. like you're completely speaking my language in, in terms of in terms of value because I've said this on the podcast a few times where it's just like, you know, it it sucks when you open a bottle of wine and it, it's corked or it's faulted because of storage or something that has happened from point A to point B, but. You know, that's that's life. I mean, it happens. But yeah. if I open a bottle of wine and I feel like I'm ripped off, that is something that completely crushes me. Um, I, guess, I guess if we're talking a lot about, about uh, wine and, and pricing, and I think we should probably taste taste one of these wines. Should we, do we want to taste one of the wines before I ask the question? I think you should, Andre. I'm, I had already popped the sparklings. So oh, me too. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go with that. Uh, and Kevin, let me tell you, you... Um, you are speaking Andre's language because one, uh, you're speaking English, but two, you mentioned Chardonnay at least three or four times. So uh, <laughs> you, had, you had Andre right from that get go. Oh, and then and then number three is just the the whole idea of, of pricing wine and, and offering great value. Um, you know, as we also as we said on the podcast, uh, I opened up uh, a bottle of Jansen from Napa Valley for Anya's birthday that we managed to get our hands on at two hundred dollars a bottle, and I felt like it offered great value for what it was it was one of the best don't, offer don't vineyards. Give any ideas, no i don't want to get well i don't i don't want to give anyone anyone any ideas but i mean it's just the whole concept of of, of what value offers uh at 200 dollars, it was on par with any of the premier Cru bordeaux that i've had a chance to taste it was definitely on par with some of the great californians that i've tasted the thing right, that i right, love let's about get off of california the thing that i love uh, about, about kevin's wines, yeah, yeah. Uh, blanc de blanc 2016 kevin Oh, wait, what are you going to tell me about this wine? Got, Why is it uh, a value at forty bucks? Wait, wait, you got Blanc de Blanc? I've got the Rosé open. Oh, oh you got well. the good. You, you guys have one of each. That's great. We cover both of my sparkling wines in one shot. Yeah, the uh, the Blanc de Blanc. We'll talk about the Blanc de Blanc. So that's Wismer Vineyard, a Foxcroft block, which is a one of my favorite spots, and that's um, picked um, earlier, around nineteen twenty bricks, pressed off, by making base wine as you do with traditional sparkling. We ferment it, go through tirage, and then it sits on leaves for 36 months. So, Michael, you have the Blanc de Blanc, right? I do. This is okay, this so is awesome. I poured, so a, that, I poured a glass for my wife before uh, coming down to podcast. She's already uh, texted me saying how wonderful it is and how much is it. So Yeah. So in, so that brioche <laughs> character you're getting, Michael, is, is the leasy character, obviously. Yep. That's, the, that's the time it's spent on leaves. And both... And Andre, your your wine, the um, Ed, or Edgerock Brut Rosé, spent um, uh, two and a half years on lees, and it's a hundred percent Pinot Noir. The reason why it's it's Brut Rosé and not Blanc de Noir is because I back colored it with just a tiny bit of Pinot Noir um, red wine, and it is uh, more luscious and fruit driven on the nose, but it has that that nice yogurty leesy character. Oh, underneath too. It, for and for both, for something that hasn't spent a lot of time on on lees compared to the the blonde blanc, it is very like toasted white bread. One of my favorite things. Yeah, it's also those, it's like, also very delicate. I remember tasting it. It is really a delicate wine. It is an elegant, finesse driven rosé. Yeah, and and that's really the 
most of my wines are made like that. I mean, I whole, I hand harvest everything. I whole cluster press them. They're they're not very phenolic or, or bitter for, uh, uh, you know, the those both of those wines that you guys have have no sugar in the dosage. The dosage is the sparkling wine and a little bit of sulfur. So the purity of the concept of of traditional method sparkling, and what you're both drinking. One was on lease for two and a half years. One was on lease for three mostly because Chardonnay is higher acidity than Pinot Noir and needs a little bit more time to soften out, um, are just a pure expression of the vineyard. It just happens to be sparkling. So the point of the price point, so one's 40, um, the Blanc de Blanc is 40, and the Brut Rosé is 45. I would, and I know I know people love champagne, and I'm a, an ex, and a champagne fanatic, but normally your big houses, you're, you're looking at 70 bucks to just get in the door, right? Is that my... I haven't bought in a lot of champagne lately, but <laughs> the cheap, cheapest one at the LCBO right now is forty nine. Okay, so but most of them are going to be around sixty, seventy range, right? Depending on the house. So this is, I mean, I, I think these are, are good value against that. And Andre, you're talking about value. There's value at a thousand dollars. There's value at a million dollars. There's always value. It just depends on what people perceive that value to be. So. Again, like I said, if I go into a restaurant and I'm expecting to spend ten dollars and it's great, I'm, I feel fine spending that. Or if it's five hundred or a thousand dollars, that's still fine. But yeah, I better leave thinking that it's good value. And I think that wine is the same feeling. If if you drink a bottle of wine you have it and you you always know what you pay for it, and you're disappointed, then you're not going to buy it again. And I feel like you know that I've priced these wines at a great value price. So I hope that my my goal is that people drink them and go, wow. That's great. I want to buy more and not price them into the $60 range where they're just buying one. I'd rather them be able to drink great wine all the time. Here's a great bottle of Foxcroft Chardonnay 2018 or, or Blanc de Blanc or, or Brut Rosé. It's not going to kill your bank book and you're going to get a great example of what you know Ontario can do. And, and we're, we're, of course, we're Canadian. We're horribly apologetic. But the reality is there is the, the quality level of Canadian wines around me right now, I'm in the in Niagara, Niagara region, or the Escarbon region, is just fantastic. The The amount of amazing wineries here popping up is, is incredible. So I implore people to come down, because you can't go to the States, so come down, come to your backyard. We're all here. We're, we're waiting for you, and we're happy that it, things are open. Well, and, and Jody a, and I are happy to have, sell you, sell the public wine directly. So And as a Ch- Chardonnay lover, I've been calling that little corner that you're located in. It's sort of paradise for me. It's got the, the Chardonnay, and I've been dipping my toes in the pond of getting more and more into Pinot Noir, something else that yeah. uh, I think I've got. I've got a bottle of Pinot that I bought from you that I haven't opened yet, but I'm very excited to get my hands into. Yeah, they're, they're more interesting. Well, I mean, I'm a Burgundy guy, really. I mean, that's really... If I had my choice, I'd either... I'd live in Burgundy first, probably Champagne second, and maybe <laughs> Montalcino third. But, like, I think that that the single vineyard vision though hasn't changed. Like I'll make, I, I have a Pinot, I made a Pinot Gris last year and I make anything from Pinot Gris to Cap Franc, what works here and doesn't die in the winter. Cause that's what makes sense here. And no wine region in the world grows everything for good reason. I mean, just cause you can plant it doesn't mean you should. I mean, it'll grow. It's a plant for a while, but you know, we, we're learning what works here. And, and to me, that's Pinot Gris to Cap Franc. And that's, that's where, um, I like to to make wines in that range. So, Michael, do you so want to give it to- an oh. interesting question about your labeling? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'm looking at them, and it says uh, Wismer, Fof, uh, Wismer Vineyard Fox Croft Block, which is yeah. two words. On many of the other ones that use Foxcroft, they do it as Foxcroft, one word. You broke yeah. it out into two. Is there a reason for that, or is that a misprint on the label? No, it's the misprint. It's just me not paying enough attention to it. And I realized that uh, last year, so <laughs> I won't. Uh, I think it is one word. Because it's it's uh, the Wismers who own a couple hundred acres here where I live in the Twenty Mile Bench. I'm pretty sure that Foxcroft was part of their family, like a cousin or I, I don't know exactly, but um, no, it's it's supposed to be one word. So uh, we will look into changing that. There's also a mistake on the back in the French. It's supposed to be sulfites with an F, not sulfites with a PH. So. Oh, good. Good, uh, good call on that one. Only Andre would have figured that one out. <laughs> that is the most nerdy question you could have possibly asked. Well, I just I wanted to know who was right and who was wrong, and it. I, I'm sorry, wrong. I one word. I'm, wrong. I'm almost positive it's one word, but I need to go. I'll go call talk to Craig Wismer. I'm sure it's one <laughs> word. Yeah. Um, or Thomas. Thomas says it's one word. I, think. Yeah. I, I have a question about philosophy, uh, and I know okay. I asked I know I asked you this when we did the the tasting in the upstairs of, of Calamus before, <laughs> but I need to get this on tape. I know that you've you, you've talked about Burgundy and like you're a big fan, obviously, of making the the single vineyard, single parcel Chardonnays and, and Pinot Noirs, but you're obviously very talented at making sparkling wine as well. If you're talking about Champagne and Burgundy, you're kind of looking at polar opposites in terms of winemaking philosophies, where Burgundy is the small parcels and Champagne is being the masters of the blend to create uh to create a consistent product uh how like do you, do you work with the two separate philosophies when you're making the the wine or do does one translate to the other no it's the same philosophy and, it, and if you look at i mean of course the big houses in champagne have massive amounts of inventory to blend but there are there's five thousand wineries in champagne right what do we have 192 or something here if you look at the grower champagne and the single vineyard champagnes of the grand cru vineyards that's effectively the single vineyard part of it is still a part of the champagne culture. So to me, it's the same idea. It's just showcasing the vineyard um, uh, and the, the idea that that's, that wine is a sense of place. So I don't do blended, big blended champagne house style champagnes, which I love to drink and are fantastic. I've chosen to do a grower, single vineyard, single vintage traditional method champagne which fits into my philosophical thing with a terroir and sense of place thing so and also fits in with the the idea that i've always been interested in marketing the vineyard right from the beginning i know i make it and i'm we started the label but that's part of the reason why i haven't been as public about me as i am about how fantastic the vineyards are and then now you're just seeing more of them i mean like i said we did three thousand cases last year and there's a whole bunch of new wines popping up all the time. So I, I, if that answers your question, Andre, I think it, it is the same philosophy, and there are some champagne houses moving that way. It's not the big ones with their big brands, the Tadache or... or uh, oh, no, you, it, you know it, I mean? it does answer the question. I'm not going to lie. I was being a bit of a, a disturber with what I was saying because I know that you, you list the vineyard where you've got the fruit from on the, on the sparkling wines. So I guess maybe yeah. the, the follow-up question then... How hard is it to be consistent with creating a sparkling wine when you're making from a single site and working to the vintage conditions? So consistency isn't the p point of my philosophy because the weather changes. 
So in in my philosophical thing, I'm okay with different different years. If one year's a little hotter, it, the the Pinot it does this. If it's a little cooler, it does that. And the same thing happens with the sparkling wine. So you may have a little bit more acidity one year, and maybe I will add a little bit of sugar to the dosage. I'll decide that later. That's why I don't put on Brut Nature on the bottle, because I might want to have four grams of sugar with the with the Blanc de Blanc next year because I hit a higher acid year. But that's part of terroir. It's, it, years change. It's not ever the same. Deserts and drier places tend to be more consistent, but the hitting it out of the park part of cool climates is that you get the balance of obviously the acidity and the delicacy and the ripeness of fruit on a perfect year and not all years are perfect but some years are better for for example cooler years are better for me for pinot noir well cab franc may like a hotter year well that's just the way it is so one year the cab franc may be a little leaner and and more uh, in that style and maybe the pinot is a little fatter and all that stuff is what interests me so when i go back through all my wines and i look at them I don't remember the year so much as I can remember the year by tasting the wine. So I'm like, oh yeah, this must have been a, you know, higher acid or whatever year or cooler year. So, short answer, I like the fact that the years are different and there is a diversity in, in, in or a, a dynamic piece to each vintage. So Does that I, answer that? yeah, it was that was actually a good answer, uh, and I I wanted to slap Andre above the head because. Uh, it's the art of the blend when you're doing a non-vintage, but you're doing a vintage champagne. So you are all about the uh, the plot and the uh, and the year. So Andre, I wanted to slap you about the head, but that was a yeah. good question. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. And I love blended. Listen, I, I I love the big big houses because they can they have so much wine, so much wine to do to blend with. They can they can come up with those consistencies in a year to year basis. Because let's be let's be honest, in champagne, champ it's the house. That's the brand, right? Yes. It's like Pomery, Tadige, da, 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 Chandon. So they're producing a specific product, and most of the big ones anyway, and they need to, to make sure that it's as close as they can get it. But look, Dom's sweeter in America than it is in Europe, so they do change the sugar, right, on the dosage so, for different markets. So here's my uh, – we're going to move on to, the, to wine two that we that we got, and uh, I'm I'm – I, we're going to leave the Chardonnay for last so that Andre can salivate a little bit longer. And we can end on a high note. High note. But you gave us here a Pinot Gris, which to me continues to be one of the most boring grape varieties in the world. Yet, mm-hmm. hold on. I was, super Im- I was super impressed by this Pinot Gris. Like, holy shit, This was a good bottle of Pinot Gris. I just, I just chugged the whole bottle. And I'm not going to lie, I thought that Michael might be um, going senile. I, I know I know he's not that old yet, but uh, he is perfectly content to rag on 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 Pinot Gris. I was really looking forward to the podcast because uh, I just opened up the bottle. Uh, I I was hesitant to buy it because Michael sometimes is running with you know like three tires on the car. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I can confirm that this time he is correct. This, uh, but, this, but my t- my car seems to work, and you've li- and you like the dream car. So uh, <laughs> I, I was more uh, that was a metaphor, Michael. I was just saying sometimes you're uh, like you're a couple donuts short of a full dozen upstairs. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but this this gris has got like peach, apple, apricot. The acidity is like mm. on point. The it's, texture is amazing. It's There's not like just apple. On it's, the finish. This thing just had like all kinds of stuff and. 
look, I don't hate on all Pinot Gris. I like some Pinot Gris with maybe some, you know, left on skins for not too long, but to get a little bit of that coppery color to it. Maybe put into barrel, maybe left on lees. So what the hell did you do here that makes this one so damn good? Wait, 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 wait. wait. I just want to throw my, my tasting note in for what jumps out on me is, is I agree with everything Michael said, but it's not just apple, but like it's very specifically like honey crisp apple, like the, the king of apples. It's it's a really interesting variety, and I, and I um, no, it, it isn't. Before. But you've made it interesting. <laughs> well, it, I mean, I think part of it is, and I like this Anisi character, Pinot Gris. This, this is hand. This is like all my vineyards, leaf thin, cluster thin, hand harvested, whole bunch press. So, again, I'm not a phenolic guy. I'm not interested in skin contact. Um, for me, that's my personal preference because. And that's why I think a lot of the wines have that texture, that elegant kind of finessey texture. They're not heavy. They're off. They're not high in alcohol. Um, they're finesse wines, which I like to drink. Right. So, same with the Pinot Gris. So it's bone dry, um, and it has an interesting natural texture. It was actually bottled early to preserve the aromatic fruit, like I do with the Rieslings um, and the other aromatics. So it's bottled early in February and let to age in bottles. So it basically traps all that, that nice aromatic fruit. And the palate needs to be on, on point, though. And it's, it's got nice acidity, so it, it finishes well, but also has an, a natural um, textural component, which does not come from aging on leaves. So those are different things. This just has a natural um, uh, a textural piece to it without the leaves aging. So then you get the fruit-driven part by bottling it early, but also the texture, which is not normal for, for, for grape varieties. For example, Riesling needs a little bit of residual sugar, in my opinion, in Niagara, because the acidity is 10 grams per liter, which is very acidic. So without it being bone-dry, which I have done before, um, it's, it's very, very acidic and searingly so, and need a long time in bottle to, to form out. But Pinot Gris just happens to be somewhere in the middle there so yeah it's fun no hold on what wait what i want to make i want to make you wait as long as possible this this is like this this is uh um this is the foreplay before andre gets gets in there <laughs> so what other wines are you making Just, oh you, you suck know, what, what are you so gonna have at right the now store seriously seriously Saturday. okay you suck <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you what we have in the store right now so we've got um those two sparkling wines you have, the Edge Rock Vineyard Brut Rosé and the Foxcraft Vineyard Blanc de Blanc. We have King Street Vineyard Pinot Noir. We have um, 2018 Foxcraft Block Chardonnay. We have Foxcraft Riesling available. We've got a white blend I made called Contrary uh, that's available. We have a rosé, a Gamay rosé, and... I think. Oh, we have another shard called Stonebridge Shard, which is not very much left of that one. And what am I making moving forward? A whole bunch of stuff. So Cab Franc's going to come on in the fall. Um, a new Chardonnay. I got two new sparklers in cage. Um, we'll do more Pinot Gris this year. And I'll think of something else fun to do. I try to always have something new, new coming out so that it's kind of invigorates the brand you know like oh this is new this is cool the, the nobody knew i was doing the, any of it so the stonebridge I, I chardonnay definitely is tell excellent. everybody that um your gamay rosé is 
a, like an outstanding bottle of rosé. It is just a quaffable bottle. Having tasted 175 rosés, yours is right up there. It is really, oh, really, really good. It is dry too, which is which I like. Like I don't, I, yeah. I like having. Again, I don't like too high in alcohol. I want to be able to drink wine and enjoy it, as they do in Europe, and not have to, you know, have pa- some pass out a bottle in. Yeah. Pass out. Yeah. Like if I'm in if I'm in Napa and having 17% Zinfandel, it's three glasses for this guy, and I'm still having to sleep on their little train thing there, going from Yonville to wherever. Not gonna lie, three, so three glasses. I've taken some, some Provencal rosés that are in the 14s. Like that's that's not a light rosé. No, Joey and I are in southern France, and so we were drinking Tavel one afternoon. It was 85 degrees, and after two bottles, we had to have a long nap until Guys, that's, the next that, day. That's still not doing too bad. I mean, if we're being honest, we're talking about alcohol content. I mean, that's. I mean, you're still doing pretty good, and that's the prairie boy in me talking. Yeah, but uh, but I mean, yeah. rosé should be should be light, easy. You want to have another bottle. You want to have another bottle. You want to have another bottle, and at 14, percent you're you're in the you're in the gutter. Yeah, you can't. And, and, and then to me, like I like drinking wine, but I don't want to be drunk. I just want to enjoy it and have food. And and I think that it's more of a cultural thing for me. So all my wines, all of them, the, the highest you'll see is in the Pinot is like 12.8. I'm trying to make sure the rosé doesn't get any like 12 and a half sort of thing. So there's a big difference between 12 and a half and 13 and a half percent alcohol, as you guys know, right? Totally. Because remember, there's 1% either way. So if it says... 13 and a half on the bottle it could be 14 and a half or 12 and a half so and people may not know that but there's one degree difference or latitude that uh, the the alcohol or the lcbo gives um wineries so you know you never really know the well you know that's within that range so i like them a little lower all right andre you can bust bust your nut now <laughs> well i actually bought a bottle of the stonebridge chardonnay i'm actually sad to hear that it's it's sold out because from the twenty eighteen the twenty eighteen yeah. Chardonnays that I have tasted so far, uh I think just because of the vintage conditions I find that the um the flavors from the oak are really front and center and it's not saying that any of them that I've tasted are over oaked. I'm I'm writing about the Back Ten Cellars one, uh I've written about the Featherstone Canadian Oak, and I, I know that your style is sort of in line with, with Back Ten and, and Featherstone. But uh I found yours so far to be the most approachable where that fruit's really Really jumping out and grabbing grabbing attention. So the the Stonebridge was showing a lot of uh, tropical and, and pineapple. I was just really happy to open it. Although now that you're open for sales, I'm gonna have to come by and grab a bottle or two before you're sold out because I do sure. need to cellar it for I think six to twelve months to really let it come yeah. to focus. Which is why Andre doesn't want to release this podcast too early because he wants to make sure. I want to make sure I get the, get get the wine. So. In our glass right now is the 2018 Wismer Foxcroft 2018 Chardonnay, and it is, it is honeycomb. Like it's got like a that's, waxy honey floral note on the nose. Like I've making Chardonnay a long time, and that's my favorite one I've ever made. I love that vintage of that vineyard. That's my favorite. It, it, and here's why: it's not very lactic. So I'm not. I'm doing a, a wild malolactic fermentation. Okay, so. And partial, so there, there. You know, I'm not running into that diacetyl, popcorny, buttery thing. It, it's re- it's retaining the, or it's preserving the integrity of the vineyard, but also just just basically deacidifying it a little bit. And then that's thirty percent 
new oak. And here's where here's where people have get in trouble with oak sometimes is that if it's a cooler year, if you're used to twenty or thirty percent new oak and you hit a cool year, thirty percent new oak starts to feel like forty percent new oak. But in a hot year, forty percent oak can feel like you know that it's not as not as high. So it depends on the year. It's it's very. I find Chardonnay is the most complicated barrel fermented Chardonnay is the most complicated wine I make to me because there's so many variables like sparkling is is very technical but but to be on point with barrel fermented chard every year and be consistent is tough in a cool climate where the, where the conditions are changing so much year to year so but that one is my favorite one for me um, I feel like it's really well integrated. The, the one lo- thing I love about the Foxcroft block is this underlying minerality, which is very, very hard to find. Okay, that's that, like, you guys know, it's like this wet stone umami kind of thing. But it's underneath the palate, and, and it, it cleans up the finish really nicely to me. So I think if you get the textural piece, because remember, I don't rack them off leaves. These are all, these are all high-end Burgundian three-year air-dried single forest um, on barrels, so these are mostly Dami that's in that one, and it's Allier and Navarre, and they're three or air dried, and they're not close to head. So there's getting into the whole barrel. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Four hours. I, I, Kevin, I would love to have you on to talk nerdy about barrels. I, I know a lot of the people listening to the podcast either work in the industry and know what Dami and Allier means, but uh, those are the forests in France, and the, the like. I think you've almost got them named down to the specific tree that you got your barrels from, if I'm not mistaken. He's well, actually named the trees. Yeah. One is uh, Bob, and, uh, and yeah. one is uh, Alain. <laughs> yeah, like w- when you get into ch- choosing a Cooper, that's a winemaker's thumbprint. That's something that I choose because I like it. That's different than just producing Pinot Gris from, you know, single vineyard Pinot Gris, bottling it early and let- letting it do its own thing in barrique or in, in bottle. This is about me choosing something. So with the Pinot and the Chard and the more Burgundian older world old style more oxidative style winemaking i am making choices that other people may or may not make so that's how you develop the style for the wine though right if i use these coopers at this percentage of toast and leave them in barrel for this specific length of time from this specific vineyard eventually i'm going to if i don't change it too much develop a style of winemaking and that 18 shard is is um yeah it's i really like that one so so what was it about 18 that makes it your, your favorite? Because I'm finding, like, the 20, my favorite so far, the 2017 Chardonnay and Pinot that I've tasted just offers that, that fine balance between being these massive wines but still offering fantastic acidity, where I'm finding so far anyways, the 2018 is just a little bit leaner, a little bit cooler, and just a little bit more, more acid-driven. Um, I don't know if you could just correct me on, on being wrong, because you know a lot no you're not wrong but nobody's ever wrong when you when you did you just say this uh, wine is lean it's well no but i mean it's like i said it's you said you've had some 18s that are lean right and well i mean this this is showing like i said it's got a little bit more oak front and center but the the, as with the the stone sorry stone bridge as with the stone bridge. bridge it's it's still showing a lot of fruit a lot more fruit than a lot of the other uh compadres from the area where you're pulling this fruit from is, is showing uh but i mean like 2017 was sort of massive fruit from the beginning still holding on to the acid and, and frankly i'd take 2017 or 2018 over 2016 
And I know we're getting nerdy into into the vintages, but I just want to know what what makes 2018 like. What about you? What about 2018 is so special for you? Balance. So I like a little cooler year. So if I push into the 23, 22 and a half bricks, anyway, I always get them there because I walk I walk the vineyards every day, all my blocks in September, October. So I know exactly. That's that's the whole point for me for what I'm doing. So I'm really I'm on it, but then. You have a delicacy, a finesse piece where you have a, just a little bit higher acid and then you can work over the leaves a little bit more for the texture. So if you try the wine now, it's opening up a little bit as you're trying because you just opened it, right? So give it a couple minutes and then you'll see the oak starts to integrate and the um, mid-palate starts to show because I don't rack them off their leaves. They're, these, the, the leaves are uh, breaking down at, you know, th- these are in barrel for about 15 months at about 12 months, and then you start to get that nice textural component, but they're not stirred. So there's this fine balance between finesse and acidity and texture, and that's why I, I like, tend to like dry but slightly cooler years, especially for Pinot, which you don't want to ripen too quickly or it's too high in alcohol and, and, and phenolically unripe, as opposed to being a cooler, longer, slower ripening year. But on the end, other side of that, ripe is ripe. So in, in warm or hot years, um, you know, uh, Riesling is also needs to be ripe to taste good too. So it, it, the short answer to that for me is balance. Yeah. So I I do have a favor I'm not sure to ask. That was you. a short answer. <laughs> I I do have a favor to ask you, Kevin. I, so I've been in, uh, locked in the house probably for three months. You know, I get out occasionally to go some grocery shopping. And you were just talking about, you know, walking the blocks and things like that. If I give you my Fitbit, can you at least make me look good to the Fitbit people? Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. pretend it's you. I'll just take your phone with me and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, just, I'll, give, I'll give you the whole wristband thing. You can just take it with you because and, and, i got yeah. to look better than I, than I do to them because they probably think I'm some sort of slug on my couch. No, no. no that's no problem. I got you. I got you back. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Uh, Kevin, I really, really appreciate you giving us the time to uh, to talk to you and to go over these these few wines here. And I'm sure your um, your retail store is going to be wildly successful. So rather than uh, rather than wishing you wishing you luck, I'm just going to congratulate you again on on lobbying the government, getting the changes made, um, making sure that the people of Ontario have access to interesting. Uh, well-priced wines and um, little vineyard wines, like actually showing absolutely you know, something different. Yeah, it, and that's well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been. I mean, I've been making wine a long time, um, not just for me, but for other people too. And uh, it's just exciting to be able to showcase the directly to the public and, and be able to ship them to them. We we can. Our retail store is open. Um, Calamus is open. I can show you some. If you, we can also have a Bordeaux discussion if you'd like to talk about that someday. But Calamus, they do Bordeaux stuff, varieties for more blended, blended work, and uh, we're available open seven days a week, eleven till five, and we we ship anywhere in uh, Ontario. So yeah, just go online, order it, and we'll ship it to you. Or come and see us, and we'll do a a, a very safe tasting of some sort. Could be outside too if you'd like. And, uh, yeah, we're, in, we're excited. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I really hope we see a lot more of, of Kevin front and center because he is so humble and modest of the quality of his wines. Like, he really just loves what he does. Like, people like but Kevin. He, but he, and, and I want but he's to... really, 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 really passionate, you know. And, and he, 
he can go full on geek if you want him to. Totally. Uh, you you know what? I, I think I think, and he, I think I think selling to the public, he's gonna have to pull that back just a little bit. It's but I sell mean, out quickly. speak for themselves. You know, I, I think people like Kevin and Derek Barnett, like they could totally start a club of like the humble winemakers club, people who are just underrated at, at what they do. Yeah, just killing it. Um, so, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the, the sparkling, because I opened the sparkling rosé. You had the Blonde de Blanc, which I have a bottle of that uh, I purchased. And I guess, full disclosure, um, Kevin sent us the wines to sample um, as, as journalists for the podcast. There will be a full review up at andrewinereview.ca and I think at michaelpincuswinereview.com. But you have a very large project that you've been working on that's going to be coming out next week. Yes, uh, should be out uh, June 29th. I got my rosé report, and he did send me a bottle of that. I think I mentioned that on the on the podcast that I'd already tried it. And I, I, I tell you, Andre, it's one of those, um, and I, I'm not speaking out of school here, but you know, I'm just going to have a top five, and I've done sparklings, and I've done stills. And, and, I, and I just tried that sparkling rosé, and I just couldn't put it down as something you go, go ahead and crush it on the patio. It's going to get a special mention and it's an elegant finesse wine. Like that's a dinner wine. That's a that's a wine you bring out to impress. It's a special it's a special occasion wine and I know like you and I have talked about it on the podcast often that like I, I kind of hate that term special occasion wine because I do like drinking the good stuff. Um and in one of our earlier uh COVID quarantine podcasts that we did I talked about how I hit the wine collection pretty hard, but I mean whether the world's ending or you're celebrating a birth, or a birthday, or a wedding, or whatever, the Brut Rosé is something that belongs at that celebration. It will be memorable, it will add to your event, it will add to your occasion, and it is an incredible value for what you're paying for. It's, it's a great bottle. You Look, uh, the Blanc de Blanc is fantastic as well. It's like we're having a debate over here whether we're going to buy two, three, four, whatever we're going to get. But I mean... The, the thing is, you got to get some because this is champagne quality uh, at non-champagne prices, just below them anyway. It's like uh, the like Buick of sparkling, Niagara. These sparkling wines are just are just killer. That's that's just the bottom line. It's like the Buick of Niagara. The, <laughs> the Cadillac. But I mean, that's it though. Is they've always said that 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 the Buick is the the poor man's Cadillac. But my my parents used to have Buicks, beautiful cars, over delivered yeah. for the price. I, I hope it's too. I <laughs> hope it's not insulting to call these wines the Buick of Niagara wine with with, with those crushed velour seats. Totally, <laughs> Andre. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Holy God, it's been forever. We gotta we gotta do this more often. Yes, I think I think we will be doing this more regularly now that things have settled in. My broken arm has healed. Uh, I have a nice metal plate in my arm. Maybe maybe our next uh, shooting the podcast i'll post my x-ray as the uh the icon for it you're you're uh, you're bionic now i am bionic i'm gonna be a nightmare to travel with for the rest of my life <laughs> i love that sound effect anyways check out the patreon uh we appreciate um we appreciate anyone who's taking the time to check it out thinking about uh throwing in a couple bucks a month or five dollars a month to Help us out. I, I know Michael and I are going to spend a little bit of time working on the Patreon to maybe offer some great rewards. So bookmark the page. Think about um, supporting what it takes to make your favorite wine podcast, which is us. And uh, you can check out the full reviews of the 2027 Cellar Wines coming up shortly at AndreWineReview.ca. 
And uh, I've already got the uh, Pinot Gris up at michaelpincuswinereview.com. Can't believe the other ones like will Gris. appear shortly. Anyways, uh, we have nothing else to say, Andre. Well, you forgot, that... you forgot, you forgot, you forgot to uh, to sign off yourself. You're oh, Michael Pincus oh. of michaelpincuswinereview.com. And what's the last thing you usually say? Oh yeah, so I'm Michael Pincus. I got to start again because it's all one big thing here. I'm Michael Pincus of michaelpincuswinereview.com. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.